Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rhodes? Well, we're going, we don't need Rhodes. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am your father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, how the heck are you doing today? Well, it was all good until one of our pets died and then I had to go take it out and bury it in this uh, ancient Indian burial ground. And then it came back to life. Oh, crap, does that happen? No. (laughs) Well, I think that's a pretty good clue as to what one of our movies is going to be today. Why don't you fill people in on what they can expect from this episode? That's right, we're doing Flubber. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to put that pretty high on the list of movies that it's going to take us a real long time to get to. Yeah, because you can't top Flubber. Uh, uh, Yeah, (laughs) something something like that. Mm. Something like that. I will say, Robin Williams made a lot of great movies in his career. Yeah. Flubber is not one of them. Flubber definitely wasn't. Uh, no, but uh, we were. We are doing After the Endings for 1989's Pet Cemetery, Stephen King adaptation, and 1995's Heat by Michael Mann. Two quite different films. Indeed, both with uh, both with some pretty solid fan bases. Well, actually, I don't know if there's anybody who really loves Pet Cemetery, but I feel like it's got kind of a like a cult sort of fan base. Yeah, to it's. It. I think it's just a little bit below us, a cult kind of film. It's yeah, almost. Yeah. Uh, I think if they just pushed it a bit more, it'd be, it'd be more of a cult kind of thing. But uh, so when you're below cult status, what that basically means is there's like 35 people that think that that movie's awesome, and that's pretty much it. No, let's say you know the whole world. Let's say 3,500. All right. Okay, that's fair. Well, for those, let's hope those 3,500 people are listening because yeah. we're doing Pet Cemetery. Yeah. So. <laughs> and it's sort of like a, it's sort of like an after the ending of Pet Cemetery and Pet Cemetery Two. But, you know, the sort of, they were sort of linked, but it's basically the same story in both. But there we go. Right. Well, here's how that happened. I, I, like, I believe in full transparency. Yeah, though. go on. <laughs> so here's what happened. Last week we announced we were doing Pet Cemetery, and it wasn't until halfway through the week that we both sort of realized, oh, wait a minute, they did a Pet Cemetery too, but which both of us had completely forgotten about. And, yeah. you know, we have this rule about not doing films with sequels, so we, we thought about scrapping it. But the second film, the only connection it has to the first film, I mean, it's the same cemetery, but character-wise, it only, it mentions the first film, but there's no real yeah. connection in terms of story. So we felt like we could still do uh, the, the after the ending for it without kind of breaking our rules. But but then again, as we've gone through these episodes, we sort of realized that our, our rules pretty much go out the window <laughs> whenever we want them to anyway. And the, th- the thing is, there's an awful lot of pets buried in that cemetery, so everyone's got a tale to tell. That's that's right. There you go. <laughs> exactly. So that's what happened with Pet Cemetery and Pet Cemetery Two. Yeah, but uh, for all the Pet Cemetery Two fans out there, you know, I'm sure you'll forgive us. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Hey, if they lobby hard enough, we could do a separate after the ending for Pet Cemetery Two. Yeah. So you know, get to, that really would be 35 people who'd be interested get on the in keyboard. That. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, no, we're not knocking out the film though because a lot of people work hard on these films, but. It's Pet Cemetery 2. There we go. <laughs> uh, but yeah, moving on, we're also going to be doing the, the top 10 films, our top favorite films of 1999. Yes, so it should be a lot of fun. Yeah. But we'll get to that. Yeah. First, let's talk about everyone's favorite subject, dead pets. <laughs> hey, you know what? I love talking about that every day with a cup of coffee and all my friends around me. Absolutely. If I can bring some really young, impressionable children to the conversation too, that just makes it. Whoa, we're going to the dark places now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe I crossed the line on that. But uh, I don't. I don't know 
who this person is, what's going on. Uh. All right. Okay, that's my cue. Then let's jump into the <laughs> film itself. We are going to kick off with Pet Cemetery. So Pet Cemetery, directed by Mary Lambert, written by Stephen King. The film features Dale Midkiff, Denise Crosby, and Fred Gwynn. So in the story, the Creed family, and really, I mean, nothing good is going to happen to a family with the last name Creed. I think we can all agree on that. <laughs> no, no. That's just got classic, like, you know, horror or slash supernatural fiction last name written all over it. Yeah, it's not, it's not a good start. No. All right. So the Creed family, that's uh, the dad, Lewis, the mom, Rachel, and their children, Ellie and Gage, move from Chicago to rural Maine after Lewis is offered a job there as a doctor. Lewis treats a patient who dies on his table, but then comes back to life that night to warn Lewis to stay away from the local pet cemetery. When Ellie's cat is killed, their neighbor Judd, played by Fred Gwynn, teaches him to bury it at the pet cemetery, and it comes to life. So far, there's a couple of warnings here. You have somebody who died come back to tell you, don't go there, and then somebody else telling you, oh, let's go bury it, it'll come back to life. Warning See, bells will be going off in my head. This is, I was going to wait till after I finished this, this, the, the synopsis, but, but this, is, this has always been my problem with this, with this story, is like, when somebody comes back from the dead to tell you not to go to a certain place, you don't go yeah. to that place. It's just common sense. Yeah. Like, oh, dead guy, came back to life, gave me a warning. I don't know. Maybe I should heed that warning, you know? Yeah, it's a bit different from somebody just, you know, a friend of yours saying, I oh, don't go down that road. It's a bit, you know, right, a bit ropey. Right. Guy goes to all the trouble to come back to life. I think the least you can do is listen to what he has to say. Yeah, definitely. That's, you know, he's gone to a lot of effort to come back. Right, right. It's not easy. Yeah. Uh, anyway, all right. So there's my, my one of my big problems with Pet Cemetery. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, despite um, – so, okay, so he, he buries the cat at Pet cemetery, and the next day it comes back to life, but it's vicious and feral, and it moves kind of like a zombie, and it's gross. Shortly thereafter, Gage, the young son, is hit by a car and killed. And despite Judd, the neighbor's <laughs> warnings, and despite what happened with the cat, Lewis still thinks it's a good idea to bury the kid in the Pet cemetery because apparently Lewis is the stupidest character who's ever lived. <laughs> so not letting my personal feelings about this story bleed through whatsoever. Gage comes back to life. Shockingly, he oh is... Oh, my God, does he? Oh. <laughs> yes, he is bad. He kills Judd, then he kills his mother, and then he lures Lewis down to Judd's house. Lewis then kills Gage again with a syringe of morphine and burns the house down with, Lew with Gage's body in it. But he saves his wife's dead body, and what does he do? <laughs> he takes her to Pet cemetery and buries her because in his mind... He figures, well, she hasn't been dead as long, so I'm sure everything will be just peachy. What could go wrong? <laughs> it's a brilliant plan, really. Yeah. Surprise, surprise, she comes back from the grave, and she shows up, and Lewis and her embrace, and as they do, Rachel picks up a knife from the counter, and as the film fades to black, we hear Lewis's screams of pain. And that is Pet Cemetery, the most brilliantly logic-based movie I've ever seen. Yeah, and then Pet Cemetery 2, same stuff happens with different people. There you go. <laughs> so, that is Pet Cemetery. Phil, why don't you go ahead and give us <clears throat> your day after? Okay. Nobody ever goes to Pet Cemetery ever again because they know it's stupid if you do. <laughs> the end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. If only that were true. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, oh, the sequel involved the Matthew family as well, because I think. Okay. Was, yeah. But anyway, okay, yeah. So after the events of the Creed family murders and the fire in the Matthew family house, the pet cemetery and whatever evil force resides there is slowly forgotten because, as we've sort of figured out, it's a bad idea to go there. People don't want to know. 
the older residents of Ludlow, Maine, don't talk about it anymore. And so it sort of it passes out of the consciousness, you know, of, of the public. However, a severe storm leads to a landslide that includes the area of the pet cemetery. The soil is mixed in with the rest and ends up deposited over a wide area, including the local normal cemetery. Mm. And that's my day after. I like it. I, I'm getting a sense of where you might be going with that. Mm. But, yeah. but we'll see what happens. Oh, yeah. You never know. You, I do never know with you. That's what I, that's what I love about doing this. <laughs> okay. Yeah. What, about you? what about your day after? All right. Well, with the knife plunging out of his back, Lewis scrambles to escape from Rachel. Yet again, his plan has backfired. He runs from Rachel, bursting out of the house and running out into the countryside. Eventually, he realizes that he's ended up in the pet cemetery again. He turns to run in a different direction, but Rachel is there waiting for him. He sinks to his knees just inside the border of the pet cemetery, and as Rachel plunges the knife into his head, he thinks, here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> and that's my day after. Well, I love it. It's, it's, it's going to tend to a rip-roaring comedy, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, not not a full-on comedy, no, but I, I definitely had to get a few shots in here uh, and there. Oh, I, I've just thought of it. I should have done it. I should have crossed Pet Cemetery the weekend at Bernie's. Oh, 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 there you go. Oh, anyway, okay. No, I like the sound of that. Yeah. Thank you. All right. So what do you have for your immediate aftermath? Okay. Wherever the tainted soil of the Pet Cemetery touched the dead, they begin to rise. That includes the humans from the normal cemetery, but also various animals and other human bodies who'd either died in accidents in the wilderness or been killed by serial killers and the like. This is Stephen King's main, so, you know, there's lots of dead bodies. So there's, a, there's an awful lot of undead coming back. Makes sense. Yeah, definitely, yeah. The humans, though twisted and evil, still have their memories, skills and abilities. They return to family and friends and the long night of terror begins. For everyone they kill, they then take and bury in the very graves they rose from, which leads to more undead. The ancient entity grows stronger with every death and the effects of cemetery soil spreads and seeps through the land. The risen also begins spreading the tainted soil. Authorities are taken by surprise as they are still dealing with the aftermath of the storm and landslide. The reports of animal attacks and more are not acted upon as swiftly as they should. A few days later, trucks loaded with soil begin leaving Ludlow, Maine to various points around America. Mm. That's my immediate aftermath. I like it very much. And I want you to know it took every ounce of self-restraint I had that when you said the tainted soil not to jump in and go, oh, tainted soil. I really wanted to. Oh, well, I'm glad you didn't. Well, you know, I really wish you hadn't. <laughs> just didn't <have> done either. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Tainted um, soil. Okay. See? It's catchy, yeah, it's, right? It's in my head now. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay, what about your immediate aftermath? What's happening it's a poor old idiot in the cemetery. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. The next morning, Lewis wakes up and arises from the dead. Rachel is sitting there waiting for him. He grunts at her, which is all he can manage, and she grunts back. But then he hears her voice in his head. It turns out that since they're both dead, they can communicate telepathically. Rachel explains that she's realized that while they appear scary and deadly on the outside, inside they're much like their old selves. The only reason they wanted to kill all their friends and family was so they could all be together in the afterlife. Ah. Rachel has a theory that once they have their family together, they'll all be able to ascend into heaven together. Gage is already there, she figures, since Lewis burnt his body, but they can still get Rachel and all be together. Lewis agrees, and they begin the long walk to Chicago, where Ellie is still staying with their family. Uh, it's good to see, though, even in, you know, undeadness, they've still come up with these crazy theories. <laughs> yes, yeah. well, you know, the characters don't get much smarter, even though yeah. they're in the uh, afterlife. Good stuff. 
All right. Well, I want to hear about this tainted soil. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so why don't you bring us home with your long term? Okay. The plague of the risen continues. The soil is the tainted soil. Whoa, tainted it's, soil. <laughs> the soil is spread on graveyards and the like. The fact that the risen, or at least those with the least amount of decay, can function in normal society means that they have the advantage. Almost everyone they kill also ends up rising again. The evil ancient entity revels in the dark power, and soon America is almost wholly occupied by the risen. Trucks, ships, and planes full of soil begin heading to other countries. The world may be doomed. Maybe. That's very that's very optimistic of you. <laughs> well, trying to be, you know, you never know. I got it. I like it. Very cool. Yeah, I thought I'd take the concept and just uh, spread it a bit. Sure. Well, it's sort of like the, the start of the zombie apocalypse through this pet cemetery. Yeah, well, it could explain most of the zombie movies then. We can go with right, that. Right, exactly. At least those that weren't caused by a comet. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I forgot to mention there was, there was a comet going over as well. <laughs> and there was some kind of leak of chemical gas. Right, 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 right. Exactly. But there we go. Yeah, that's my uh, that's my long term. What about yours? What happens with these uh, with these people and the theories? Okay. Well, seven months later, Rachel and Lewis arrive on the outskirts of Chicago. Turns out, it's a long journey when you walk like a zombie and have to avoid major roads and all human contact. Their bodies are beaten and battered, and winter in particular was hard on them. But they have a plan to make their way into Chicago and reunite with Ellie. As dusk falls, they begin to work their way in from the outskirts. Before they get too far, however, two gunshots ring out, striking them both in the head. They fall to the ground, dead. A hunter makes his way out from a blind, thinking he's landed a prize buck. When he sees the bodies of two people laying on the ground, he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't want to go to jail for murder. Checking his map, he realizes he's near a local ancient burial ground that now stands as a memorial. (laughs) He drags the bodies there, digs a makeshift grave for the two of them, and buries them. He leaves and never looks back. As night falls, the dirt covering their graves begins to stir. (laughs) Just a vicious cycle of stupidity. So the undead, undead. Yeah, I don't know what's going to happen when they come back from being twice dead. They're like refried beans, but they're like refried Zombies. Re, re-zombie Refried people. human beans. Hey, 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 ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Phil gets the prize tonight. Yay. <laughs> yeah, I like it. So there you go. Refried human beings. I like it. <laughs> so there we go. So that's like my, that's my like long term. That was good. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise. All right. Well, what kind of uh, trivia do you have for some pet trivia, perhaps? Well, I have some little trivia for both the films. It's, a, it's not too many things, but it's a, a few little choice samples of undead but apparently for the first film bruce campbell was the first choice to play lewis creed huh i think that would have changed the tone of the film dramatically yeah, yeah. or less dramatically as the case may be you just be wanting to you know bury, put on, the, to put bury on the chainsaw loads, that's it yeah bury loads of people and then just fight them that'd be good right <laughs> uh, when victor pascal was being carried into the clinic a rabies poster with a picture of cujo can be seen on it yeah, that's and as funny. you know cujo was uh, another stephen king book made into a movie I like it. George A. Romero was originally set to direct it, but had to drop out when it was delayed. Interesting. And again, it might have given a different kind of feel. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sequel, Pet Cemetery 2, was set three years after the original, and it starred Anthony Edwards of ER fame and other, lots of other things. But there's one scene where he's watching Once Upon a Time in America, and that film stars an actress called Darlene Flugel, who plays Anthony Edwards' wife in Pet Cemetery 2. Oh, I like that. But no, I just thought that was a nice little interesting one. 
Sure. But that's Pet Cemetery 2. Uh, well, Pet Cemetery. Very good. Well, let's move on then to a movie that many, many people love. Probably, um, I think it's safe to say more people love the movie Heat by Michael Mann than love Pet Cemetery. Do you think that's a fair assessment, Phil? I think that's probably, you know, quite close to the truth. Although, although, just to play devil's advocate, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this little argument out at you. Go on now. Pet Cemetery got a sequel. Heat did not. Until now. <laughs> Until right. this very but moment. It's, it's hard to argue with that logic, though, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah. by that logic, I, uh, Pet Cemetery is a more popular movie than Heat. Wow. <laughs> that means Fast and Furious is a better movie than Heat. Uh, that, well, now listen. <laughs> I know how you feel about the Fast and Furious movies. I'm not that big a fan of Heat, actually. So I, I, would, actually, I would actually make that argument. But that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, yeah. Mind we'll you, get... though, the, the Fast and Furious films are stupid fun. You know, you right, can, right. They're, they're right. good popcorn movies. Absolutely. Whereas Heat is for someone, you know, who loves film. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Zing. Phil gets another <laughs> one for the day. Wow. that one. I'm not going to lie, Phil. That one hurt a little bit. <laughs> uh, listen, no, I agree, for, I agree with you. Heat is definitely a movie for people who love film, especially films that have literally no sense of humor whatsoever and also <laughs> go on for a half an hour too long. I, I mean, I think we're in total agreement there. No, no, you're right. No, but... Uh... It's like every film. People like it. People don't like it. You know, it's one of them. No, I don't. It's not that I dislike it. I, I like the film. I just think there are a lot of people out there who really sing the praises of Heat as one of the like really uh, great movies. And to me, I'll just, I, Mike, I'm just know. going to stop you. I've just had a text off De Niro. <laughs> yeah, he said he was going to come on next week's show as planned, but after hearing what you think about Heat, <laughs> he's cancelled. <laughs> I got you. Well, I, I just got a text from Ridley Scott, and he says, I'll take down Michael Mann in the least sense of humor in Hollywood competition any day of the week. <laughs> wow. that's Yeah, that's a very good point, yeah. No, but if they did make a film together, yeah, it would be – it would probably have a good soundtrack, Michael Mann. Yeah, and it would, and it would look great, and it would be 17 hours long, and it would yeah. be incredibly humorless. And it would be about seven or eight different edits. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. 30 years from now, we'd still yeah. be getting new versions of it. And ha half of it will be filmed in, you know, super high def, so it looks ultra realistic and a bit, you know, cheesy. Right, right, and right. The rest right. of the all arty, proper film stuff. Right. Pretension Dawn, the director's director's <laughs> cut, extended edition, version 3.0. <laughs> Go bury it in your local Indian. Yeah, it's burial ground and see what rises. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So we've gotten pretty far off topic. Let's yeah. bring it back around to heat. Phil, why don't you tell people what happened in heat? And and uh, I would say go ahead with the nutshell version as best you can because it's pretty complicated. Yeah. As I always, think... if you haven't seen it, you, you need to see it. Yeah, I did. I did try uh, and boil it down to a couple of sentences, but that's impossible. Right. But uh, heat is a very good film, which I love. Uh, 1995, starring Mike, well, directed by Michael Mann. It's got a, a huge cast of brilliant actors and actresses. Uh, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Val Kilmer, Tom Sizemore, Ashley Judd, Dennis Haysbert, John Voight, Wes Studi, Natalie Portman, Danny Trejo, just to name a few, and there'll be a few more mentioned as we go on. But So the, listen, uh, that, was, that was the cast list, and that's how long that took. So while you do the recap, I'm going to go get a drink. Uh, maybe I'll walk my dogs, uh, and then I'll be back in time for you to finish up so we can do the end. Okay. How's that sound? That works for me. Okay. Okay, here we go. Settle down with a nice blanket, you know, a cup of hot chocolate, because we might be here a while. Okay, Neil McCauley, played by De Niro, and his gang of uh, professional criminals. They rob some barabons. It's the kind of thing you always see mentioned in these kind of movies, and nobody ever actually knows what they are unless you're in, you know, 
the you know finance. Uh, but during the heist, the guard is killed by one of the gang, a guy called Wayne Grow, played by Kevin Gage. Uh, Macaulay's fence, Nate, played by John Voigt, says he should sell the bonds back to the original owner, Roger Van Zant, played by the always brilliant William Fickner. Van Zant ambushes them, though, and Macaulay vows revenge. Meanwhile, LAPD Lieutenant Vincent Hanna, played by Al Pacino, figures out Macaulay and his gang did the heist and work out their next target. So they stake it out, but during that time, they accidentally give themselves away and Macaulay abandons the burglary and escapes. Despite police surveillance, the gang plan a bank robbery worth $12 million. But while they're planning this, Macaulay meets Edie, played by Amy Brenneman, in a cafe, and they start a relationship. Hannah discovers his wife is having an affair and ends up living in a hotel. His life, his personal life isn't so hot. Still before the robbery takes place, Hannah ends up pulling Macaulay over on the freeway and they go for a coffee and talk about their life and their personal problems. It was also the first time De Niro and Pacino met on screen, so it's, uh, it was quite a big deal for that. Uh, but uh, both their characters both say they'll carry on their paths and use lethal force if necessary. The bank robbery takes place but ends up in a huge gunfight, uh, an absolutely brilliant scene. Uh, police and criminals are killed, uh, but some of the gang get away with uh, quite a big chunk of the money. Uh, Macaulay finds out that uh, Winegrow let Van Sant know about the bank robbery, and so Macaulay tracks down Van Sant and kills him, and plans with Edie to go to New Zealand and get out of there with as much money as they can take. However, he gets to the airport, but while there, Macaulay gets word at Winegrow's location, and heads off for revenge, something he, he wasn't going to do. He always said you could just walk away in 30 seconds, but he goes back for the revenge. Uh, one of the other members of the gang, a guy called Shahelis, played by Val Kilmer, manages to slip away when his estranged wife lets him know the police are onto them. Macaulay ends up killing Wengro, but on his way back to Edie, he sees Hannah, and sticking to, this time sticking to his leave everything in 30 seconds, he leaves. Hannah chases Macaulay down in the night and ends up at the end of a runway. It's a bit of a cat and mouse chase. And Hannah ends up shooting Macaulay. And as Macaulay dies, he puts out his hand and Hannah takes it and watches him die. And that's Heat. Well, congratulations, Phil. That was a slightly slightly shorter recap than the actual movie itself. Nice. Yes, thank you. thank you. I mean, there's an awful lot more going on, lots more characters, but that's the basic gist of it. Yeah, no, nice job, nice yeah. job. Here, here's you. the thing. Now, this isn't a dig on heat necessarily because a lot of movies do this. There's a ton of these movies where these criminals, you know, they're like, we're going to do one last big score to secure our financial future and blah, blah, blah. It's like you've been – you're career criminals. You've been doing this for I would imagine 10, 20 years. And none of that time did it ever dawn on you to maybe put some money in savings. Like what have you been doing all this time? Well – Probably been a lot of time spent in prison because they always seem to be in and out of prison as well. That's true. It just seems to me like maybe if you had done a lot of smaller scores and just squirreled away that money, you wouldn't have to do that one last big heist to, you know, because if you've ever seen a movie, then you know yeah. that the, that last big heist never works out. Yeah, if you were just like, thought. if you were a professional criminal and somebody in the gang says, okay, this is going to be the one big heist, you know, the last heist we can get out of it. You just walk away when you go, that's it, I'm out. Exactly. Yeah. Thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. I'm going to keep doing smaller ones. I'm going to put them in my 401k. I've got a nice little nest egg yeah. going. Yeah, you, you, <laughs> should you say that, you've cursed the job. It's like when you go and you see the guy in the war film going, oh, you know, I can't wait to get back and see my baby boy. Let's yeah, 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 exactly. Well, it's, the, it's the policeman's last day on the job. and Right, right, yeah. exactly. Anyway, all right, well, nicely done. Thank you. So what have you got then for your day after? All right. Well, Macaulay's body goes unclaimed. Can I, can I just uh, – I've got a feeling that uh, there might be a bus driver involved at some point. <laughs> yeah, that is a good guess, and I actually almost did put a bus oh. driver in. But 
to be honest with you, it's been so long since I've seen the movie, I couldn't remember if there were any characters I hated enough to <laughs> okay. want to run over with a bus. So okay, I try and cool. save that only for characters that I really, really, truly passionately hate. Oh, yeah, that's very true. Okay, then. Uh, so go anyway. on a day after. All right. So Macaulay's body goes unclaimed. Edie has decided to stay away from him in the aftermath. Despite how she felt about him, she was worried that her life would become infinitely more complicated if she got involved with his post-mortem affairs. So Hannah puts up the money for a funeral service for Macaulay. Nobody shows up, but Hannah sees a shadowy figure off in the distance and believes it's Shaherless paying his final respects. Hannah debates going after Shaherless, but seeing as how he has no backup, he decides to just let him go. After the small burial, Hannah returns to work. He sits at his desk, and for a while, he's lost in thought, unsure of what to do next. With his sort of nemesis finally defeated, he feels a little lost at sea. Then the police chief drops a massive file case on his desk. Hannah, he says, you up for a new case? Hell yes, Hannah growls. I guess I should do like Pacino. Hell yes, Booyah! Hannah growls. What do you got? And then dives into the work. And that is my day after. Oh, nice. I like that. It's a nice continuation. Yeah. Yeah, it starts off normal. Okay, let's see, see what happens. Okay. Yeah, it, kind of, it, it stays normal for a while, and then it maybe takes a left turn. But spoiler alert. Uh, meanwhile, why don't you tell us about your day after? Okay. Edie waited for Macaulay, but after a couple of hours, she realized he wasn't coming back. At first angry, she calms down and knows something bad must have happened. As the news report of the shootout starts coming through, and Macaulay's name is mentioned, she's heartbroken. Hannah's also upset. He had hoped he could have taken Macaulay in alive, as he, in his own way, did respect him. But he knew it would end up coming to this. He is commended by superiors, but it is small satisfaction when his personal life is falling apart. Meanwhile, Shaherless begins his journey south. And that's my day after. Hmm. I'm interested to see where we're going with that, with Shaherless. I didn't write him in more because I couldn't uh, deal with pronouncing his name more times than I had to. So. I know, it was a, it was a pain. But uh, sometimes you've got to go with the pain. I understand. Okay, so what about your immediate aftermath? All right, well, five years later, Hannah has worked his way up the department. After the chief had a heart attack and retired, Hannah was made interim chief, where it quickly became apparent that he was well-suited for the job. He then goes on to serve for a few more years. When the mandatory retirement age is upon him, he isn't ready to give up working just yet, so he looks at his options and realizes that public office is the best bet for him. Seeing that the mayor position in L.A. is up for grabs in the next election, he decides to run for mayor. After a tough campaign, he finally comes out ahead and takes the job as mayor. He hopes to help clean up the city, but it turns out he did such a good job as the police chief that the city doesn't really need all that much cleaning up. So he begins to look at more alternative methods of helping the police. And that's my immediate aftermath. Maybe you can sense where the left turn hmm. is coming. <laughs> hmm, okay. Hmm. I've, got an I've got an idea, but I don't know if it will be that, but... I'm Pretty sure I'm not going in the direction that you think I'm going in, but we'll see what happens. I'm thinking of another Al Pacino film, but then you, I did, I did toy with the idea of just writing the plot of Righteous Kill, which was that movie that he made with De Niro in 2008, which was oh, yeah, really, yeah. really horrible, and just yeah. passing that off as my after the ending. But I decided not to because that movie was terrible. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Such a disappointment that one. Yeah. Anyway, how about your immediate aftermath? Okay, a few days after Macaulay's funeral, Edie gets a letter. It's from Macaulay and begins, if you're reading this, I must have died. But obviously, in the voice of Robert De Niro. <laughs> Not the voice of a, a British guy? Well, maybe, you know, in her imagination, that's, that's how Macaulay sounded. Sounded right. just like me. <laughs> could be. I, I don't know if I could do it, De Niro. Well, not that I could do anybody else, really. But, you know. The only thing you had to do to De Niro is just go, you know, you, De Niro's all do his about face. That. I'm doing his face now. Right. And then you go, I, I heard things. 
I yeah. heard things like in the uh, Saturday Night Live sketch. There you That's go. That's it, yeah. There you go. Okay. <laughs> okay, the letter goes on to talk about how he loved her and wish they could have had more time together. It also includes a key to a safety deposit box. When she goes to check it, she finds it contains $2 million. So she's quite happy with that, but she's still upset, though, because Macaulay's dead. Uh, you know, she's not a monster. Sure. Uh, Hannah throws himself into his work even more, but he also starts going to rehab because he has a bit of a cocaine habit, which he wants to try and get rid of. And it explains Al Pacino's, you know, manic behavior in the film. <laughs> uh, while he's going to rehab, he meets Ellie, a writer, and the two hit it off, and a relationship tentatively begins to blossom. Shahirlis makes it down to Mexico and arranges to have some money sent to his, his wife who had warned him about the police. He realises that he'd probably never be able to go back and knows that his money won't last forever, so he begins looking for work. And that's my immediate aftermath. Interesting. Now, at what point does Ellie tell him about her tragic past with her family all dying in the pet cemetery? Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, no, I just... I... <laughs> There's no actual connection, but you never know, do you? No, fact, you never it could, do. could be the same character, but okay. that's that's just the name, right? All right. <laughs> what have you got for your long term? All right. Well, Hannah begins implementing experimental new programs to help the police, but as he's gotten older, his faculties aren't quite what they once were. Hoo-ha! New initi- <laughs> Hoo-ha! New initiatives that include the Hugs for Drugs program are all major failures. <laughs> 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 I kind of like that one. I like that as hooks for drugs. <laughs> I don't know how it works exactly, but I I I could see it not being. Does that a mean huge if you success. give hugs, you get drugs? I mean, it could, <laughs> it could, or maybe like if you turn in your drugs, you get a hug from a police officer, kind of like those gun programs where you turn yeah, in yeah. and get like Xboxes. But I don't know that it would have the same the same impact. Sometimes all you want is a hug. Well, that's what I'm saying. So yeah. I can see why he would at least try it. You got to try things. Got to try hugging. That's right. Don't hug strangers, though. You know. Right, right. Anyway, when a new program that sees Nerf underwriting the costs of weapon replacement for the police spectacularly backfires, the result (laughs) is a record number of police deaths over a short period of time. (laughs) (laughs) Replacing guns with Nerf guns. It was an accident, though. It wasn't meant to happen. (laughs) Uh, It's just their new super realistic line of Nerf weapons. There was a mix-up, you know, and and let's just say officers were, were, you know, they didn't all make it. Yeah, but some of them had real good fun. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So in desperate need of more police and trying to save his career, Mayor Hanna introduces his most radical initiative yet, a new rule that says that the police have to accept anyone who applies to the police academy. The result is a new wave of fresh-faced cops. <laughs> There's one group of standouts, however, who really step up and make a difference, a group of recruits named Mahoney, Lassard, Barbara, Thompson, Jones, Hightower, and Tackleberry. <laughs> A new squad is ready to clean up the streets. Holy crap. I never thought you would be able to go from heat to police academy. It wasn't easy, let me tell you. But, uh, but it all makes perfect sense. Faith. It just flows. It kind of does, right? Yeah. I have to admit, like I got the idea to put police to connect it to police academy, and then I connected the dots, and I was like, you know. I mean, yeah, granted, the nerf thing is ridiculous, but it, it, still, it still works. So I, wow. I went with it. Okay, that's no, that's uh, good. I didn't see that coming at well, all until you. <laughs> until you mentioned actually mentioned police academy, and then I went, ah, oh. right. <laughs> okay, brilliant. Well, you know, I always say Michael Mann needs to inject some humor into his films, so I thought I would do it for him. And you don't get any funnier than the police academy, right? Right. At least, well, at, least at least the, the first, first one, one anyway. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So anyway, that's my long term. I'm pretty sure you don't go in that direction. So let's hear how yours wraps up. Oh, I want to see Mahoney going up against Al Pacino. No. <laughs> I don't. Oh. 
Yeah. Well, that'd be good. Okay, yeah, my long term. ED, already a successful designer, manages to launder the $2 million and invests it back into her business. And she ends up employing more and more people and is a huge success, gets even more successful. She never forgets Macaulay, but eventually moves on with her life and settles down with a man called Craig. And she lives a long, happy life. Hannah manages to clean himself up. No longer on cocaine, he finds he can do his job better and balance it more with his personal life. He ends up marrying Gally and they work together on writing a book based on his life. It sells quite well and when Hannah leaves the police force, he ends up becoming a consultant for movies and TV shows. He loves his new life. He's in a happy place. Shahirlis ends up becoming a mercenary for hire and gets quite the reputation of being an honourable man and a dangerous killer. He moves around constantly and finds himself involved in battles, schemes and adventures in South America, Africa and the Middle East. Through various identity changes, he ends up working for a US security company in Iraq. This legitimises his current identity, so once the work is finished, he takes a risk and returns home to America. He tracks down his wife Charlene and they are reunited. Things start off rocky, but they eventually find balance and live a long, peaceful life together. Hmm. I like it. Not the way I saw that going. Yeah, well, I, was, I thought I'd just go maybe kill them all, but then I thought, no, let's let's give them a good ending. So, you know, what's interesting is you sort of went like the me route. Like you went for like the, the like kind of happy ending, the romantic ending, which yeah. is usually where I go. I usually yeah, yeah. sap. Tonight, the part of Mike will be played by Phil. Uh, I can't do what's I could I could hear the gears turning in your head as you tried yeah. to figure out how to do an impression of me. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> I tried to do a generic American accent and can't. Uh, I hope that is not what you think I sound like. Uh, I can't do. I can't even do it in a single American. Next accent. week's next week's podcast. Instead of saying hello, welcome to After the Ending, I'm just going to say, "Hey, hey, hey, <laughs> welcome to After the Ending." I sure are glad you all came here to join us today. Yeah, <laughs> like I'm from North Dakota now. Yeah. Oh, don't you know it's After the Ending? Yeah. <laughs> Hey, hey! I can't. I can't even think of an American. I'm, I've got an American person talking to me, and I can't think how to do an American accent. That's crazy. Oh, well, oh, well, I order. There you go. Yes, thank you. I am John Wayne now. Apparently, yeah. D- yeah. That's what. That's what you sound like to me. Hey, that's what every, Pilgrim. That's what every American sounds like to me, John Wayne, oh, huh. including that's... the women. Okay. <laughs> But it makes it hard uh, watching an American film because everybody sounds exactly the same, so I don't know who's talking half the time. Right, right. I can understand <laughs> that. Uh, okay. Anyway, uh, so how about some uh, some trivia about Heat there, Phil? Okay, John. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Mike. Let's get to the trivia page. Sound effect, sound effect. We need to pay our Foley artists more. <laughs> yes, we do. We, we need go. to get a Foley artist, too. Okay, some Heat trivia. Heat, the film, was based on a true story. Really? Yeah, mainly set in the 60s, though. The real Neil McCauley did meet for coffee with the cop, Detective Chuck Adamson, who was after him. And apparently the conversation in the film was very much like their actual conversation, uh, which I found fascinating because I thought thought the whole thing was just, you know, work fiction. But no, uh, lots of bits and pieces were actually the same. John Voight's character was based on the real-life former criminal and writer Edward Bunker, who many of us will know played Mr. Blue in Reservoir Dogs. Right. Uh, the film was all shot on location, and principal photography took 107 days. The In 2002, the shootout scene was shown to U.S. Marines as an example of the proper way to retreat, retreat while under fire. Because hmm. that is a cracking scene. No matter what you feel about the film, that is a really good scene. Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The action scene, especially I mean, that signature scene, is yeah. amazing. I think that's part of why people love that film so much, just because that oh, is a yeah, very iconic it's, scene. It's immense, that one. There were no rehearsals for the... The cafe scene, so uh, 
because Pacino and De Niro they, and Michael Mann felt that the unfamiliarity between the two characters would be more genuine if they did that, if they just went in and sat down and did it. Uh, the film inspired Christopher Nolan's vision of Gotham City and the Dark Knight trilogy, and you can really you can really see that once you know that, you go, oh, well, yeah, they use, probably use similar places as well, but the way it's lit and the daylight is used, it's, uh, it's very... Very similar. Uh, right. During the during the shootout scene, man had microphones placed around the set to capture the audio of the gunshots instead of dubbing them in later, which adds to the realism of the whole thing. So you're actually hearing the guns going off, which is quite unusual for a film. Sure. That. But that's uh, Heat. Very cool. All right. Well, there you go. So there we have uh, Pet Cemetery and Heat. That's going to be a brilliant night's movie making as long as you just watch Heat. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I can't entirely argue with that. Obviously, I've made my opinions about Pet Cemetery well known. So, yeah, sorry to everybody involved making Pet Cemetery. You did a good job. Well, the first at- one at least I think has some some mo- some you know moments as far as just being like a kind of a good cheesy horror film. Uh, yeah. You know, it's at least entertaining in that respect. But it's it's a trouble. So many uh, Stephen King adaptations. I mean, the the books usually work quite well, but then so many of his adaptations just fall apart. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's been uh, remedied somewhat in more recent years. Um, yeah, yeah, but I mean, it, especially for a, for a long time, it did seem like there nobody could make a good Stephen King movie. Yeah, it's very true. All right. Well, speaking of good movies, let's move on then to our hundred years of Hollywood in one hundred episodes, wherein we take a year and share our top ten films from that year. And this year, we are doing nineteen ninety nine. So, Phil, why don't you hop in your famous time machine and tell us what the world was like just a just a Scotch ago, a decade and yeah. a half ago. Yeah, so close yet so far. Okay, in 1999, the British Prime Minister was Tony Blair and the US President was Bill Clinton. Uh, it's the year saw the euro being established as the currency in many European countries. The Sopranos debuted on HBO while Futurama and Family Guy began on Fox. Uh, the Melissa Worm attacked the internet. Wayne Gretzky retired from the National Hockey League which uh, I think was a big deal if you're a hockey fan. Uh, British TV presenter Jill Dando was shot dead on the doorstep of her London house. Uh, SpongeBob SquarePants debuted on Nickelodeon. Can I just say it's really weird to me that The Sopranos and SpongeBob debuted at this, in the same year. It seems like SpongeBob's been around so much longer. I know, but also you've got to think they've both got very similar storylines. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> that is true. No, I know what you mean. It does feel like SpongeBob's been on an, aw- an awful lot longer. Uh, right. And I, I, I didn't even think that Futurama, though, was that old. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Weird. It's weird. It's, anyway. it's strange that when you start going over these things. Uh, let's see what else. After 22 years of restoration, Da Vinci's The Last Supper was back on display. Napster debuted. And probably, the, you know, the music industry went, damn you. <laughs> uh, we, we also saw the first version of MSN Messenger. The Sega Dreamcast was released in the USA. Grand Theft Auto 2 was released on PlayStation, and George Harrison was attacked in his home. So that's all what happened. But we also had a few deaths of some big names. We had Gene Siskel, Derek Nemo, Oliver Reed, Dirk Bogard, Mel Tomei, DeForest Kelly, Mario Puzo, George C. Scott, Madeline Kahn, Desmond Llewellyn, and Curtis Mayfield. But we also had some film debuts of some people who have gone on to quite big things. So 1999 saw the film debut of Amy Adams, Zoe Deschanel, James Franco, Hugh Jackman, Chris Klein, Ashton Kutcher, Ali Larter, Justin Long, Sean William Scott, and Melissa McCarthy. Very cool. So that was 1999, uh, a year of some very good films, lots of films I'd seen, but uh, do you want to start us off? Absolutely. My number 10 is Flubber. Just kidding. 
Well, oh, okay. Damn, I'm just going <laughs> to cross something out. <laughs> All right. Well, my number 10 is The Green Mile, directed by Frank Darabont, starring Tom Hanks and Michael Clark Duncan and a bunch of other great people. Uh, and it's it's Frank Darabont's second Stephen King prison drama. I don't know how that happens exactly yeah. uh, after Shawshank Redemption, of course, but it is a really fantastic film. Uh, it's It's, you know... I don't even know what to say about it, honestly. It's just it's a really good film. It's not quite Shawshank level great, but it's a, it's really moving. It's shot well. I mean, Frank Darabont makes great films, especially when he's adapting Stephen King prison dramas. And uh, and I, I really like it. So that's my number 10. Okay. My number 10 is Magnolia by Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, it's got a very big cast, including Tom Cruise, Philip Baker Hall, Philip Seymour Hoffman, William H. Macy, Alfred Molina, Julian Moore, John C. Riley, oh, and so many other people. It's quite a long film, but it deals with all these different people and how coincidences and various forces can, like, and chance can have, can affect life. And it's it's all these different characters coming together or just touching on each other's lives and having this knock-on effect and bouncing around and then frogs fall from the sky. And it's a... Uh, I really like the film. It's It's got a great soundtrack, lots of uh, Amy Mann songs, uh, some great acting, some great scenes. And I can understand why some people don't like it, but I really like it. It's my number 10. It's a great choice. I, I do like the movie. It's not um, – it didn't make my list, but I do like the film very much. It's back when I think Paul Thomas Anderson was making some really great films. Mm. Um, and I also will say that I think that Tom Cruise's performance in that movie is amazing. And whenever people oh, it's, tell it's me, one of his best, yeah. Oh, for sure. When people would ever say that Tom Cruise wasn't a good actor, I would just point them at Magnolia and say, go watch his performance in that movie. And the fact that he lost the Best Supporting Actor Oscar to Michael Caine in Cider House Rules that year remains one of the great travesties of of the Academy Awards, so yeah, yeah, was it was that uh, Michael Caine's first Oscar? I can't remember. I just know yeah. that that was the year that Michael Caine won for Cider House Rules, and Tom Cruise lost for Magnolia, and Haley Joel Osment lost for Sixth Sense, which is just ridiculous. So yeah. Anyway, uh, what are you gonna do? Not much. Moving on. My number nine is, believe it or not, <laughs> and you probably won't believe it after everything I just said about Heat. My number nine is a Michael Mann film. Oh, okay. It is The Insider, starring Russell Crowe and Christopher Plummer, and it tells the story of Jeffrey Wigand, a whistleblower who basically uh, not brought down the cigarette industry but sort of was responsible for a lot of changes when he revealed that the cigarette industry did know how harmful cigarettes were to people, and he leaked the story to, I believe it was 60 Minutes. And uh, it's based on a true story, and it's one of those movies that, you know, I've talked about these films on the show before where you sort of forget how good it is until you yeah. watch it again. Yeah. And I know I love a good journalism movie, and this is, at its heart is a journalism movie. Uh, it's one of my favorite genres. But it's it's one of those movies where you just – you watch it and you go, oh, my gosh. Like this movie is really, really good. The performances are amazing. The story is gripping. It's suspenseful because things start to go wrong for Weigand and the company starts to threaten him. And then it looks like the, the news company leaves him out to dry and you don't know what's going to happen. It's very gripping stuff. And um, it's a film I really respect and I really love. And, it, and, it, and Michael Mann's direction and his lack of sense of humor – actually fits this film uh, and it is also before Russell Crowe was a household name and I remember watching this film and just completely falling in love with Russell Crowe as an actor uh, before he went on to then not be such a great actor and many other things but um, <laughs> I should, I mean, he's a good actor but you know he sort of started I don't know making films I didn't like as much I yeah say. no I know what you mean yeah uh, but by when but when this film came out I was completely enamored with him and I was magnetized by him on, on screen and uh, I think it's a terrific film 
all around. Uh, actually, it didn't make my list purely because, like you said, you forget how good it is. I've, I think I only saw it once or twice when it first came out, and I haven't seen it in a long time. Right, and you know, it's uh, and and I completely understand that. If you will go back and rewatch it, yeah. you will. I guarantee you, you're going to go, man. I wish I put that on my list. Yeah, I could. <laughs> I it probably yeah, but uh, as I've not seen it in years, but right. I, I, I need to go back and look at that. It's, it's definitely worth a rewatch. Yeah. It's surprisingly good because I remember really enjoying it at the time. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those ones. Like I just said it just it doesn't seem like the kind of movie people are going to go out of their way of. It's not a big action film, you know. It's a drama, you know. Yeah. It's about journalism and this stuff. But but like I said, when when you do rewatch it, you are struck by just how good it really is. It it holds yeah. up so much better than I think people would expect it to. Well, it actually gets referenced quite a lot though amongst my group of friends because there's one of my friends, Richard. Uh, we always take the Mickey out of him because we say he looked like uh, Russell Crowe's character in that film. <laughs> right, that right. That always keeps coming up. But, uh, <laughs> That's funny. But no, I'll, I'm going to have to watch that again. Okay, sure. but my number nine is uh, a film directed by Michael Patrick Jan called Drop Dead Gorgeous. Oh, good film. And it's a mockumentary about uh, contestants in a beauty pageant. Uh, so it doesn't sound that hot, but it's it's very funny, quite dark as well. But it stars Kirstie Alley, Ellen Barkin, Kirsten Dunst, Alison Janney, who's always brilliant. Denise Richards, uh, Brittany Murphy, and Amy Adams, who we already know this was the year she debuted, so that was one one of the films she debuted in. But it's uh, it's just it's a bit like uh, it's along the lines of you know Spinal Tap and those films. It's uh, it's it's taking this thing we all know beauty pageants, but it's showing the various characters. You know, one of them is innocent, just trying to do the you know just wants to take part and have fun. There's other ones, the mothers are you know forcing forcing them to do things they don't want to do, and then people start dying, and it's all. It's just it's it's cringe making in places. It makes you laugh out loud in others. Uh, it's just it's just really well done, and it's very hard to get a mockumentary and do it right. But this one does it very well. Yeah, that's a great choice actually. And I I, I thought about it when I was going through the the year. The only reason it didn't make my list is the exact same reason the insider didn't make your list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I loved it when I saw it originally. I, I remember laughing throughout the whole film. It's very very funny. Mm. Um, but it's been I don't think I've seen it since since 1999 or maybe yeah, 2000. Yeah. And so I I couldn't remember enough how it stacked up against the rest of the films. But it is very good, and I do enjoy it. So I, I do want to go back and, and rewatch that. So great well, pick. As we were saying before recording, though, this uh, this year, doing this, it's, the films, I could do this again tomorrow. I might, this, the films, you could change it again. You'd be going, oh, there's so many to pick from, so many good films. Yeah, 1999 was really a good year. I mean, my, my short list, uh, and that's just going through and putting down the ones that could potentially be my top 10, was 20 films, and I had to narrow yeah. it down from there. And that didn't include all the ones that I liked that just weren't top 10 material. So it was, yeah. it was a tough year, but that's a good yeah. pick. Nicely done. Okay, what have you got for your number eight? My number eight is... The Mummy, the big screen reboot of the Universal Monsters with Brendan Fraser uh, and Rachel Weisz. And, you know, I really love that movie. It's it's a lot of fun. I, obviously, it was a big hit. I'm not alone in that. The sequels never quite lived up to the magic of the first one. But I really, really love the first movie and how it, it captured the tone of being a big adventure movie and yet still having a really great sense of humor, yeah. uh, which is hard to pull off. But it really did remind me in a way of like the Indiana Jones films, you know, in that respect. It was that, oh, that yeah, totally, swashbuckling, yeah. didn't take itself too seriously. You know, Brendan Fraser, whatever you want to think of him as an actor, he's perfect for that movie and that character. And then you add to that the fact that it has all these great special effects and really cool action sequences. And it's just a movie I really, really enjoy. And uh, and actually, it's been too long since I've seen it. So now I'm going to have to go back and rewatch it because I've seen it many, many times. And I do really, really think it's a lot of fun. So that's my number eight. 
Yeah, you could you could easily imagine Indiana Jones being in the background or something. You know, the same adventures and cross, crossing paths at some point and then going off and finishing off right. their own storylines. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. Okay, my number eight is Galaxy Quest. Another good pick, which we did after the ending saw back in episode twenty-two. But it's the one. It's basically a spin on Star Trek, but some aliens think it's a real show and they take the cast and take them up into space where they have to fight evil aliens. But it stars. It's a. It's a. Brilliant cast. Tim Allen, Zagoni Weaver, Alan Rickman, Tony Shalhoub, Sam Rockwell, Daryl Mitchell. And it's just, it's a lot of fun. It's, it plays it plays with the Star Trek conventions really well. Uh, it's got some good effects, uh, a great script, and it's a great idea. And it just, uh, everybody is just totally buys, plays it straight. Because you need, if you're going to have a really good comedy, you need to play, have most of the, the cast, you know, playing it straight and just going with it. And there's a, but there's the normal human kind of humor where, you know, laughing and joking. But Sam Rockwell has like a tiny little bit part, but he just, he just steals every scene he's in with his cheesy mustache and smile. But uh, it's just, it's just fun. It's a lot of fun. And actually, it was on my short list and it just got squeezed out of my top 10. And, and that's, that was a tough one for me because I, yeah. I really enjoy it. All right. Well, my number seven, I, uh, I broke my own rule and I, wait, I went with a tie, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, and the only reason I did that was because the two films are uh, similar in a way. I, I'll say they're, they're fairly similar. They are Deep Blue Sea and Lake Placid, mm. two creature flicks about man eating. Animals. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. You know, we got Super Smart Sharks in Deep Blue Sea, which we did an after the ending for uh, a while back. Yeah, that was episode 33. Episode 33. There you go. Yeah. And then Lake Placid, it is human eating uh, alligators. And the reason they both made my list and I couldn't really decide between the two of them is, is you know, we've talked about Deep Blue Sea on the episode. It's a great thriller. Yeah, yeah. It's Rennie Harlan. It's a lot of fun. It, they kill off people that you don't expect to get killed off in surprising ways. And there's that scene with Stellan Skarsgård getting smashed into the window, which we talked about. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's great. Um, Lake Placid, on the other hand, is um, a, a typical kind of big monster movie, but it's really funny. And, you know, it came out on Blu-ray maybe a year or so ago. And I, I rewatched it because I remember loving it when it came out and having not seen it in a long time. And I got to say, it holds up spectacularly well. It's really funny. The humor holds up well. Betty White is in it and she's great. Uh, Bill Pullman is the lead actor and he's terrific, you know, before he sort of disappeared into the supporting role, netherworld, you know. Um, But it's a really fun movie and I I think that uh, either people haven't seen it or have forgotten how much fun it is. So both of those are great creature flicks that I love. So they, they made a tie on my list. No, it makes perfect sense. Uh, Deep Blue Sea was in and out of my list. Didn't didn't make the final cut though, but it is. I do. It is a film that I, I do have a lot of uh, love for. Uh, as for Lake Placid, I think I only saw it the once when it came out, but I remember enjoying it. I remember finding it quite funny. I wasn't expecting it to be as funny. As you said, basically this list is uh, it's going over lots of films that I need to watch again. Yeah, I know. Me uh, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, good good pick though. I totally understand why you put them together. Thank you. Uh, my number seven is Ghost Dog: The Way of the Samurai. The Jim Jarmusch film starring Frost Whitaker as the uh, mysterious ghost dog uh, who's a hitman for the mafia and he just follows the code of the samurai. It's got a great soundtrack. It's it's a little bit bizarre because, he's, as we say, he's living the life of a samurai. His best friend is somebody who speaks French but doesn't speak English and ghost dog doesn't speak French. But it all makes sense in the film. It's got some... Not, not that much violence, but it's just when he does go on a mission, it's pretty cool the way it's done. Uh, but it's a good story. It's a great performance by Frost Whitaker. And if you haven't seen it, it's well worth checking out. Fair enough. Although I do know some people don't like it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big fan of it, but that's okay. <laughs> 
All right, moving on. My number six, and I actually did not plan this, but my number six is the sixth sense. <sighs> oh my god! <laughs> and uh, I mean, really, another one we did a, a an after the ending for back in episode uh, episode. Yeah, let's see. The sixth sense was episode twenty one. So right. you could listen to episode twenty one and then go straight into episode twenty two, and then you got Galaxy Quest as well. There you go. So, so uh, sixth sense. I mean, it's M Night Shyamalan's debut film. It has that ending. Bruce Willis is terrific. Haley Joel Osment was like the best child actor in history. What uh, was the ending? I turned it off about <laughs> ten minutes before the ending. <laughs> uh, it's just a, it's just a, a really is a great film and another one that holds up really well. I know that it's easy to pick on you know M Night Shyamalan in in more recent years. Although he's made a little bit of a comeback, but yeah, he's coming back with Split. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. Uh, but he um, it's still an amazing film and I love it. No, it's a great choice. Didn't make my list, but uh, uh, my number six was David Lynch's The Straight Story, hmm. which is uh, a film. Well, it's a bit unlike most of the David Lynch. Films because right, it's, it's kind of the uh, least David Lynch film he's ever made. Yeah, because it's, uh, well, as the story says, it's a straight story. It's uh, There's none of the weirdness as it was, but it's basically a guy called Alvin, played by Richard Farnsworth. He, he's a World War II vet who lives with his daughter, Rose, Sissy Spacek. But he hears that his brother has suffered a stroke, so he goes decides to go traveling him, but because uh, his legs and eyes aren't too good, he can't have a driving license, so he puts a trailer to the back of his uh, lawn tractor, and or lawn lawnmower here in the U.S. Oh yeah, well yeah, just just so people are clear. Yeah, he drives along on his lawnmower uh, and sets off on a two hundred and forty mile journey, and the lawnmower only goes five miles an hour. It's basically a road movie, but it's just it's just him driving along on this, and it's he meets people on the way because you know people want to know what he's doing, and he just meets some various characters. It's a scene of it's a film of different scenes of different people meeting, talking. And then moving on to the next one. Sounds quite boring, but it's it's beautifully done. It's uh, lovely acting, uh, and it's it's very touching as well. Alrighty, well, my number five is the Boondock Saints, a uh, cult classic if ever there was one. Popular enough though to uh, eventually launch a sequel. It stars Sean Patrick Flannery and a pre-Walking Dead Norman Reedus uh, as two sort of uh, low-level criminals who kind of bumblingly become. Uh, much bigger criminals than they intend to. Uh, it teaches you why you should always bring rope with you when you are doing a criminal job. And, uh, you know, interesting story about Boondock Saints. So when I was uh, younger, I worked at a, I managed a video store. Yeah. And it was a Hollywood video. And this is important because what would happen was probably I would say once every Friday night, somebody would come in and ask me for the Boondock Saints. And we didn't carry it because for some reason it was a Blockbuster exclusive and Blockbuster was our competition. Oh, yeah. So I always had to tell them, no, we didn't have it. But the first time somebody asked me for it, I had still not, I had not heard of the movie yet because, again, it wasn't a box office hit. It was a, a cult classic. And then slowly but surely more and more people started to ask me about it. And I was like, what is this Boondock Saints thing? I keep hearing about it nonstop. And so after it just sort of started to kind of always be something people asked for I decided I, I needed to see this movie and then I watched it and I realized why people wanted it because it's a truly fantastic uh, action kind of caper film with a, with a sense of humor and a heart and it's very different from most other action movies and I really really love it um, and it sort of went on to have kind of like a pop culture renaissance where they made like t-shirts and you could buy stuff and yeah, like hot yeah. topic and stuff about it um, but uh it's it's a great film, but I, I definitely was one of the people. I wasn't one of this isn't one of those movies I discovered when it was you know in its infancy. I I came into yeah. it because I kept hearing about it from other people, and so I finally tracked it down, and I really do love it. So well, that's my I've got to hold my hand up and say I've never actually seen it. What you haven't seen Boondock Saints? Know. 
I know it's oh, one man. I always keep me into because I, I've like you, I just people talk about it all the time. It gets mentioned, pops up, things like this, uh, and it's I don't know why I never got around to seeing it. Yeah, it's it's, it's a ridiculous bizarre. amount of fun. Yeah. You should definitely yeah. check it out. Because I know from what people have told me about it, I know I'd probably love it. So I think just, uh, I think you would. I think yeah. you would, as long as the hype isn't too much. But yeah. Okay. But well, cool. All right. Well, definitely check. I'll it out. I'll get to it at some point. Oh, of course. Add it, of add course. it to the ever growing list. All right. Okay. My number five film is Payback, directed by Brian Brian Helgland and starring Mel Gibson. But it's uh, basically Mel Gibson plays Porter, and he does a, a robbery, but his his girlfriend and his partner turn on him, shoot him. And you think they've killed him, they do offer the money, but Porter's not dead. He spends a few months getting better, and then he comes back to get the 70 grand taken from him. That's all he wants, the 70 grand, grand but he works his way up through the uh, the crime syndicate, which it's all involved with, and everybody's surprised he just wants the 70 grand, but it's uh, twists and turns. Mel Gibson's great because he just plays it dead straight as, as Porter, and he just goes through them all. Outthinks them, outsmarts them, outguns them. You just don't want to get on the wrong side of port. It's, it's based on the novel The Hunter by Donald E. Westlake, uh, using the pen name Richard Stark, and it had already been adapted back in 1967 by in the brilliant Point Blank, which starred Lee Marvin. But uh, this is a, it's another great adaptation. I really like it. I watched it again a few months ago, and it's still, it still works really well. Yeah, I um, you know, that falls in the category of films I like but don't love. So it's it certainly yeah, yeah. is a good pick, but yeah. uh, it wasn't on my list. I think that was the thing when it came out. People, lots of people liked it, but it wasn't uh, didn't grab a lot of people. But, sure, right, exactly. Yeah. All right, well, my number four is a comedy, and it is Ten Things I Hate About You. Oh yeah, yeah. starring Julia Stiles and Heath Ledger and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, uh, based on the Shakespeare uh, work, uh, The Taming of the Shrew, and you know it's. It gets lumped in with other movies from that era like American Pie as a teen comedy. And it is a comedy about teenagers. So I can understand why it would be lumped in with the teen comedies. But 10 Things I Hate About You is really a fantastic movie. I mean, it's high on my list for a reason. It It is really sharp, really funny, uh, really clever. Larry Miller is really terrific as the girl's dad. He's very funny. Um, Heath Ledger, this was, you know, before he was a star, it was kind of the movie that introduced him to American audiences. He's terrific. He does a whole kind of song and dance number briefly in there somewhere. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is great. And um, the film just has this charm to it that I love. And I, I think it's it makes me laugh every time I watch it, and I just think it's elevated so much above a typical teen comedy. Yeah, it's got a bit more to it, hasn't it? Yeah, it does. And I don't want to say it was written for adults, but I think as opposed to like American Pie, which was made for teenagers, when you watch 10 Things I Hate About You, even as an adult, you relate to it. I think it's much more about the typical high school experience. It's not just like a, a, a you know a sex comedy romp like American Pie or Porky's. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's what I was going to say. It's, it's not so desperate to get into the sex jokes and all that stuff, is it? Right, exactly. Exactly. And so it does have, you know, an R-rated sense of humor at times, but it's it's just a much more heartfelt and enjoyable movie. And I think it holds up so much better because it is written from a more mature standpoint. So um, it's a movie that I love. My wife and I both love that we've seen it together many times and it holds a special place in my heart. So that's my number four. No, perfect. It's uh, It didn't make my list purely because I only saw it the once way back when it first came out and as we've been saying all through this list. Right, well, <laughs> have to go back if and watch it, it If I'd watched it more recently, it might have made the list, but uh, there we go. But I know an excellent pick. My number four is uh, an animated movie directed by Brad Bird. It's The Iron Giant. Awesome. Yeah, which is a, a great film based on Ted Hughes' book, The Iron Man, from 1968, which I always remember reading in school. I used to love that book. read it loads of times. But it's all about we have this giant robot which crashes onto Earth, 
and a small boy called Hogarth ends up meeting again. They become friends, have adventures. The robot wants to become Superman, but the US government's agent is uh, after it because, you know, he thinks it's a menace and he wants to destroy it. The military come in, things get really bad, uh, but, you know, it all ends up good in the end. Uh, if you've seen it, you'll know why. It's a beautifully animated film. It's got a bit more going to it than some of the some other animated movies. It's uh, I quite like the the style as well. It's uh, it's almost retro style the way it's all done. Even it's it just works really well. And the design of the uh, the Iron Giant itself is great. And it's a great performance by Vin Diesel. And I'm not being sarcastic. He does the voice of the Iron Giant. Doesn't say much, but he does it very well. Agreed. Uh, it's certainly a precursor of sorts to his role as Groot. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent pick. Uh, and as a matter of fact, it is my number three. So Yay. very well done. Uh, I love the Iron Giant. You know, I think there are two kinds of people in this world, people who love the Iron Giant and people who haven't seen the Iron Giant. Yes, uh, yes. Because it's brilliant. It is amazing. I, I cry at the end of it. I think it's very heartfelt. It has a yeah, real yeah. heart to it. Like you said, the, the, the animation style is kind of retro, but it's, it's beautiful. The character design is phenomenal. I love the way the Iron Giant looks and the relationship between him and this boy, you know, the Hogarth is, is fantastic. And it's, it's just one of those animated movies that gets everything right about family movies. It works for yeah. kids. It works for adults. It's, it's just phenomenal. If you haven't seen it, you really are missing out on one of the greatest animated movies of all time. Yeah, it's it's nice though because it doesn't. It's not one of those ones where they have to explain everything. It's just you work it out. You see the stuff. You see Hogarth watching, you know, the late night horror movies, and he's got his little ray gun. Yep. And all this, stuff. and it just tells you so much about the characters. And then you see the the mum; she's working hard, and the way she's got the house and things like this. And it tells you so much in the way the characters act, yep. as opposed to them talking, which is the way it should be in a film. You know, you can see you can tell so much. From someone the way they they move and what they do and things like that. It's just yeah, it's 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 a supremely well made animated film, but it's just also a supremely well made film. Yeah, absolutely. Heart yeah. and humor, you can't go wrong with that. Yeah, excellent. Uh, so my number three, it's already been on your list. It's the Mummy. Ah, very good. Yes, it's. Uh, I didn't know if you. I didn't know how you felt about the Mummy. I didn't know if you were as as enamored with it as I am. So that's cool to hear. And I love it. Well, it's also it also helps because I saw it when I was in the, the first time I went to New York as well. So there's the whole thing of going to see New York and I'm walking out and you're in Manhattan and you're right. like, wow, this is amazing. But as like like you say, it's just a brilliant adventure. I love all the pulp kind of stories anyway, uh, and uh, I just think this one does it so well. It's uh, all the characters are brilliant. You've got the mummy with the great effects as well, which it's because uh, it's it's quite scary, you know, the, what the mummy does. It is scary but it's all wrapped up in this this humorous action romp through Egypt. you got all these different characters coming together. you got not not even not just Brandon Fraser's crew it's also the other guys, the American guys, they've got personality. Like as we said with the uh, the Iron Giant, it tells you so they do these broad strokes with the characters, but they do it well, so you know exactly what these people are. And like within like thirty seconds of them being on on screen, and I really like it when a film does that. And it just, it and then you can just get on with the action and the adventure, and you know, you know who they are and what they're doing. And it's just, as, and as, as you say, the sequels just not a patch on it, but uh, it's just a great action adventure romp through uh, history. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, obviously, I concur as it was on my list. So nicely yes. done. All right. Well, my number two pick is Mike Judge's Office Space. 
Uh, oh, a, yeah. yeah. A, 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 you know, a classic and a cult classic at the same time. I want my stapler. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My stapler. You have my, my stapler. My stapler. Um, it, if you have never worked in an office, it's a very funny film. If you have worked in an office, it is a brutally funny film. Oh, good God, yeah. Uh, nobody has ever clap- captured so much about what makes working in an office the experience that it is as Office Space does. It really is brutally funny but coming from a place of truth and so I, 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 mean, I just love that movie I actually it was one of those movies I'm proud to say I saw in theaters which not a lot of people did because it wasn't a yeah, big hit yeah. obviously gained a new life on video and now of course it's it's just it's just part of the lexicon. I mean, Office Space. Everybody has seen it and loves it, um, and it is it is one of my favorite workplace comedies, hands down. Oh no, it's uh, it almost made my list. But as I said, there's been lots of good films. But no, I, I agree with everything. I mean, when I worked in an office and then saw the film, you're just going, "Oh my god!" Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. This isn't a comedy. This is just real life. Right, right. right. There's so many yeah. quotable lines from it, though. I mean, it's it's oh. one of the great ones, I think. Okay, my number two, well, my number two and my number one sort of kept flip-flopping back and forth, but my I'll go with number two is uh, David Finch's Fight Club. Oh, right, right. Good choice. Yeah. Starring Brad Pitt, Edward Norton, Helen the Bottom Carter. Uh, I'd like to tell you more, but you can't really talk about it. <laughs> I hear there are rules. Yes, but uh, I will say, when I saw it in the cinema... I didn't know what it was about. So when the thing that happens in it happens, I remember I was with my friend Dell and I just, the two of us just went, oh my God, but probably <laughs> in more swearing like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> I remember when we were leaving the cinema, there's a Welsh guy behind us and he was just going, what the hell was all that about? <laughs> and it was, uh, it was, it was, I just, it just blew my mind. And I was just going, wow. And I had the great soundtrack by the Dust Brothers and all sorts. You, when you rewatch it again, because you obviously know what's the big the big thing, you're just suddenly going, oh, my God, it's all there. It was right there in front of us the whole time. Right. But we just didn't get it. Right. Well, listen, it's a good pick. Uh, I think we've talked about this on, on the show before. I, I like Fight Club. I don't love it. Uh, I've, I've yeah. watched it a few times, including in recent years, and it's just there's something there that keeps me from really loving it. I think it's very clever. I think the performances are great, and I do like you know what happens. But um, you know, it's a film I respect, and I, I can enjoy somewhat, but just not one of my favorites. But I can certainly understand why it would be on your list. I know it's a yeah, very yeah, yeah. well-loved film. All right, well, my number one pick is I'm hoping your number one pick, Phil, because if it's not, we may have to have some discussions in the future. But my number one pick is The Matrix. Which Whoa. I, <laughs> I would I would think would probably be the number one pick for a lot of people from 1999. Obviously, it was a massive success worldwide. It spawned two sequels, and now there's talk of a reboot. Here's the thing. I don't have to say a whole lot about The Matrix and how it revolutionized filmmaking and special effects to a bit and how great it is and how amazing the fight sequences are. I watched it again just a few weeks ago, sort of by accident, and I fell in love with it all over again. I, I forgot how much I love that movie. And I was telling my kids about it, and I was telling them how they could maybe watch it in a few years when they were a little older and my daughter said well how much of a favorite is it for you like where would it fall on your favorite movies list I did some quick math and I figured out that you know you've got Casablanca as we all know then you've got your Star Wars and Indiana Jones trilogies probably your Back to the Future trilogy and then The Matrix so we're talking top five films of all time for me ah, okay. um, yeah, well, well it's it's, def- it's my number one of 1999 very good because it's as you say it's uh, it pushed boundaries it, it was another one of the ones I saw when I was in New York. Actually, it was the first. Oh, cool. Me and my brother got there, and we realized we were we were going to get uh, jet lag, so we decided to stay up late. So we wandered, and we saw this film called The Matrix was on. We knew nothing about it. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely nothing. So we went into it, watched it, and we are blowing our mind about what you know reality and stuff like this. And we are going, wow, that was amazing. And we were absolutely so tired from the flight and, you know, and just being awake for so long. 
we forgot we were in New York, so we just finished watching <laughs> The Matrix in the cinema, and we're going, that was really good, that, and walked out, and we were in Manhattan, and the two of us had a tiny little panic going, what? What's going on? <laughs> that is brilliant. I love it. Well, I don't have a, as cool a story as that, but I do remember seeing it on opening night and then going back the next weekend and seeing it again and the next weekend and seeing it again and then seeing it two more times before it left theaters. Yeah, I think I think I saw it about four or five times in cinema yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, I really, really love it. It holds up so well. Um, as I just watched it a couple of weeks ago, and so uh, that's the Matrix. I don't, I don't even need to say anything else about it. It's the Matrix. Yeah. It's amazing. It's one of my absolute favorite films ever, and that's my number one of nineteen ninety nine, and yours as well, well. I might as well, and also because the fact Keanu Reeves doesn't age, if they are <laughs> going to do this this prequel sequel thing, they could still get him back, and he'd look exactly it, the same. It is true. It is true. You could even have a uh, John Wick could actually be a new version of the matrix oh, that's right it could be like a, a 2.0 because everything sort of gets rewritten doesn't it and right. wiped you know wiped clean right right i like it but yeah it's a matrix number one for both of us and probably for quite a few other people listening to this i would imagine so yeah and and deservedly so anyway that's going to wrap up 1999 and that's going to start to wrap things up for us this episode phil why don't you go ahead and tell people what they can look forward to next week Okay, next week we'll be doing the top 10 films of 1935. But, you know, there's some good ones there, I've checked. Uh, We'll also be going after the ending of Time Cop, so a bit of Jean-Claude Van Damme action, and Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein. A true classic, if ever there was one. Yeah, Frau (laughs) Blucher. It's Frankenstein. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well... Put the candle back... Clearly, we're going to have some fun with that episode, so please come back and join us then. As always, we thank you greatly for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. Testing, testing, one, two, three. Now, ironically, you know, I, I, I adjusted my volume last week. I did not yet edit like I normally would, so I have no idea if oh, I'm yeah. for yeah. a disaster or not. So uh, hopefully it'll work out. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> the worst that can happen is we have completely unusable audio for the entire episode. So yeah. that's all. Nothing yeah. to worry about. Some people would say that's a blessing. <laughs> we just say it's a special episode. Right, where it's just you and then you get to fill in my yeah. audio yeah. in your get, head. Like see you if you can guess what Mike was saying. <laughs> this week, on this week only, you get to play the part <laughs> yeah. of Mike. Yeah. It's the world's first interactive podcast. <laughs> and Phil, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm... Um... <laughs> you, know, you know what's funny about that <laughs> can i just say what's funny about that is it's not like you don't know the question is coming because I, I ask you like every week and so you'd think that some point during the day you might have prepared an yeah. answer but i love the fact that that you didn't because i know if the if the shoes were reversed i would be in the exact same boat yeah. <laughs> I, I knew it was coming and i could i was already i was going yeah i'm gonna say it's all good but and then nothing <laughs> with every death that's it. <clears throat> okay. What are you doing, your Al Pacino over there? Yeah. <laughs> I've got to save that for heat. Oh, right. Sorry. <laughs> what do you got? <laughs> so so what have you got then for your long term? <laughs> you want to take that again? Yeah. <laughs>